Our life is filled with grace. The very beginning of our spiritual life is an expression of your eternal grace that you determined to set on us in the sun before you even created one Adam, before the foundation of the world. It is your eternal purpose to bring something into existence, the universe. It was in your eternal purpose to redeem what you have created, to redeem out of that creation those who bear your image. And we are thankful to be numbered as the children of God and to be able to sing those songs in truth and sincerity. And so we thank you. And we know that our greatest expression of worship is that we delight to hear you speak to us and you speak to us in your word, your written word. It is there that, as you said, O Christ, that we hear your voice. And so we pray that that would be the case this morning, Holy Spirit, as you dig out our ears, as it were, and to give us understanding so that we may hear that voice of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, coming back to this great epistle. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6, 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6, as we prepare our heart for the Lord's table. Uh, I would introduce it this way, that we're not uh, surprised, it's not a... Probably not news to your ears to hear that we are in a cultural war, war, that there is within our culture, particularly this American culture, we could say Western culture if we wanted to expand it out, but particularly our culture here in America in wars of ideology, which are really spiritual wars. They're not primarily political wars, though they do take place on that plane. They're not primarily wars of opinions or just groups or factions, but they are Wars of two competing spiritual forces. There is the forces of darkness and there is that work of God in his people in this world. And it is becoming more intense and we're not surprised about that either. I heard just a little bit of the speech of Mike Pence at Taylor University, I think it was yesterday, in which he made this point, which is obvious to all of us and is made over and over by many people, that now more than ever there is a time for Christians to stand up and to be clear about what it means to be a Christian and to be those who also are walking in integrity. He didn't quote from 1 Peter, but that is exactly the idea here, that there is even within their case, though in different historical circumstances, a situation in which being a Christian puts you against the popular culture. And going against the popular culture means to bring the scorn of the popular culture. And that has both not only social ramifications in terms of being thought less of or ridiculed and so forth, but it has political and it even has at some points legal ramifications when the opposition against the name of Christ rises above mere scorn and bad names and ridicule to legislation, when it rises to the level of persecution at a real level, a level that many of our brethren around the world are experiencing even now. While we have been rescued or spared from much of it, it will come in God's own timing. So it is the history of Christianity to be at conflict with the world around us. It is the history of Christianity to stand out and to be different from the secular culture around us. It is a Christian worldview that always stands at odds with a secular worldview. It's impossible for it to do otherwise. And the more those odds 
come to the front, then the greater the intensity of the conflict. It happens at a macro level in terms of culture in general and at a micro level in terms of our own personal lives, which is where Peter is going to point us this morning. But being a Christian means that we have committed ourselves to Christ. It means that we have committed our whole lives, we've committed our fortunes, we've committed our future, we've committed our eternity to Christ, to the work of God in Christ and to every promise in Him. And that means that following Him will come in times of blessing and ease and peace and tranquility. And it means that following Him will also bring us at times into conflict and to persecution and suffering at some level as God ordains it in our lives. And so the idea, the big idea, if you will, or the main point that Peter is drawing us to here this morning, which is in some way the point that he's drawing us to in all of his epistle and really all of the New Testament and all of scripture is this. Commitment to Christ comes with a temporary cost, but it bears eternal glory. To be committed to Christ is going to come with a cost in this world, but the cost is minuscule, is minor compared to the promises that we have in Christ. So let me read our passage and then we'll look at that in three simple points. That are, I'll read them to you first. Commitment to follow Christ is a commitment at all cost. Secondly, that commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to righteousness. And thirdly, a commitment to follow Christ culminates in eternal life. And we'll tease those out a little bit as we go. Read with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time has already, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousings, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they be judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. A tremendous, tremendous passage. Let's look at this first point in verse 1. Back with me. Commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to follow at all costs. Again, as has been evident throughout this letter this, of Peter to these Christians scattered abroad, is that they are scattered because of suffering, and suffering is a part of the Christian life. It is a part of being committed to Christ. But the suffering that we experience is a suffering that is consistent with the suffering that Christ experienced in his own life as he revealed God to the world. He was the light of the world in a world that is under darkness. And that conflict brought suffering, and it so will bring suffering to those who follow him. That is a basic New Testament principle, New Testament reality. And it is born out of our connection to Christ. Our life is bound to Christ. Our life is bound to Christ in every way. His life was, in many ways, for us, a pattern. It was a model. We are in union with him. Our lives are totally identified with him. He'll say that in another way later in chapter 4. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, a little Christ, he's not to be ashamed but to glorify God in this way. 
So the suffering that we bear in this world, to use the language of Paul in Colossians, we're filling up the sufferings of Christ, what remains in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, the world's hatred towards Christ is not spent on him. We endure it as well who are identified with him, who are his body on earth. And so the particular part of our sharing in the life of Christ that Peter is highlighting here at the beginning is that of suffering, that of suffering. Now, in one sense, the suffering of Christ included his whole life. So the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that was something that was present in the entire life of Christ as he lived and he walked in this world. But ultimately, the suffering of Christ was climaxed in his death. It was even death on a cross. That means then that, or that brings up that Our union with Christ and our identification with Christ and this thing that we share with him is not in his atoning death. It's not in the fact that he gave himself as a substitute for our sin. In that way, Christ is unique. In that way, only Christ could bring us to share in the life of God. Only Christ's death could make us sons and daughters or children of God. Only Christ's death could bring about reconciliation. Only in Christ's death can we be made sons. His work is unique in that sense. But in what way then do we share in his life, in his suffering? In what way do we share in his life, in his death? And it's simply in this. And this is really what is implicit here, but is what is behind uh, the entire call of discipleship. And that namely is this. Submission to the will of God. His suffering displayed is submission to the will of God. Ultimately, Christ in his humanity, though unique as the sinless Son of God, united to flesh, what he demonstrated in his humanity was what God requires of all of us, namely perfect love to God, perfect love to neighbor, perfect submission to his will, perfect fulfillment of his purposes and calling for us in this life. His life was without sin. His perfect obedience in his humanity is what all of us should demonstrate. And in that way, we are connected to his suffering, not because our suffering can be like his in its atoning reality, but our suffering in our life and our identification can be like his in its perfect submission to the will of God. In his perfect submission to the will of God. And it is in that way that we are, as Paul says in Romans 8, to be conformed to his image. Conformed to his image. But that conformity, again, is going to mean that we are going to be brought into conflict in this world. Let me just read one passage here. You don't have to turn there, but John 15. He says this, just as a way of reminder. He says in verse 20, talking to his disciples, then the night he was to be betrayed, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So Peter is again here at the beginning addressing us as those whose lives can be expected to follow the same pattern as Christ's life. It's the same warning that Christ gave us. As the world treated him, so the world is going to treat us. So as Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And that means then to embrace Christ is to embrace commitment to Christ. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. The language here is drawn from the military. 
The verb has the idea mainly is to, to be prepared or to make something ready. But it, it has the, the more common idea and how it was used both in the Bible and outside of it as equipping and arming of soldiers. That's the idea. Equipping and the arming of soldiers. And so this military idea is suited especially to Peter's level, uh, letter with the theme of conflict. But it fits the New Testament reality as well of spiritual warfare. So to become a Christian is indeed to enter into the delights of Christ. It is indeed to, to enter into the delights of fellowship with God, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of glory. But it is also to enter into a war, into a war, into a battle, into a spiritual battle. And that's the idea here is that be aware that you are in a spiritual battle. Our weakness too often is we don't think in terms of warfare. We don't think in terms of battle. We don't think in terms of an enemy to our soul that is attacking us from every angle and for which we need to be prepared to do battle and to do conflict. It's a spiritual war where the cost is not simply life, but God's glory and the souls of men. And when we forget this, we can become too comfortable and familiar with sin. Too comfortable and familiar with sin. And those things that would cause us to compromise on holiness. And so that's part of Peter's exhortation to us is arm yourselves, look at Christ who has suffered in the flesh and be prepared to endure the same consequences for being obedient, for being obedient to God. Equip yourselves, arm yourselves with the same purpose Again, have the same thinking in yourself that was in Christ. And again, what was the intention of Christ's heart? It was to submit to the Father. He said over in chapter 2, just by way of reminder, that he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 23. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He gave himself up. He obeyed, he suffered because he knew that his life was in complete submission to the will of the Father no matter what it brought. And he knew it meant the cross. This, he says in John 12, was the very purpose for his coming. So what does this mean then for us? It is this. This is essentially then, in Peter's own words, a reflection of the very words that Jesus said to him when he rebuked Peter. If you remember, Jesus said he was going to suffer. Peter said, this will never happen to you. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're, set, or you're setting your interest on, or your mind on man's interest and not on God's interest. And then what did he say? Do you know the words? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's essentially the words that Peter is reflecting here, the very ones that Jesus gave to him when Peter at that time was not understanding that the way of following Christ was the way of suffering. Essentially, this is a reminder and a call to embrace the commitment that we've made to Christ when we believed on him. When we believed on him. It's a call to discipleship. And so the idea is this. When your profession of Christ comes with a cost, the cost that is required will test the reality and the strength of your faith, the reality and the strength of our love for Christ. But I want you to notice something else here about just the language that he uses. He says, arm yourself with the same purpose, the same purpose. And he uses an interesting term here, which 
You could surmise by reading that translation, but the, the intention here is this, or the, the term here is this, is that arm yourself with the same purpose. In other words, prepare in your mind and determine in your mind by reasoned thinking to be faithful to your calling. That's the idea. Reasoned thinking that is, comes to a determination to be faithful to the calling, to be faithful to your profession of faith. To be faithful to Christ. Determine ahead of time that even though the enemy will come and there'll be, uh, there'll be attacks that you are going to be faithful. But it, what it tells us is this, is that the ability to do this begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. It's first a battle of the mind. The battle for sanctification, for obedience, and for holiness begins in your mind. You have already won the battle to be faithful to Christ long before you ever commit any deed for him or against the truth. The battle was first being fought inside. The battle was first being fought in the mind and in the affections. The battle has already been won or lost in the mind before it's ever evident in our life. So the success or the ability of us to defeat sin and to be faithful to Christ against odds is determined by this one simple fact, the desire for holiness. Our desire for holiness our love for Christ. So the real question of sanctification and the real question of our ability to fall in line with Peter's instructions here is this. Not so much what you do all day. Not so much where you go. Not so much what you do or do listen to. All of those are a part of it. But it is this. What do you think about during the day? What kind of things do you desire during the day? What kind of things distract your affections? What kind of purpose and resolve does your thinking lead you to? Sin or faithfulness? Sin or faithfulness? So here, it's a simple call to say, arm your mind, arm yourselves, determined within yourself that you will, out of your commitment to Christ, walk the road that he calls you to travel regardless of what that may cost. As Christ has suffered in the flesh, in his humanity, arm yourselves also, engage in the spiritual warfare by determining in your mind to have the same purpose to follow him and to walk faithfully even as he did. But then here's where it gets interesting. To do this then is a consecration to holiness. It's a consecration to holiness. This kind of resolve to suffer is not only the faith that embraces Christ to suffer, but it is the faith that embraces Christ to yield to the will of God in its totality, to cease from sin, he says here. Now, this is interesting. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does he mean by this? Well, as you can imagine, there's all kind of odd uh, ways to take this. But before answering it, let me just note this. It's important to note when you come to statements like this that sometimes the easiest way or the, and the safest way and the right way to approach it is to acknowledge what it does not mean at first. What he does not mean is this. He does not mean that the one who has suffered for righteousness will never sin again, as if suffering brings about some second-level spirituality like monks who went off and hid in the woods or the desert and so on and so forth. It doesn't bring you to just some higher plane of spirituality where you reach this level that you no longer sin. 
That would be refuted by the Apostle Paul himself. And no one suffered as the Apostle Paul did for righteousness. And yet he himself said, I have not yet attained it. I've not yet attained to perfection. I'm not yet where I need to be and where I want to be. Moreover, John, the apostle, tells us that to claim sinlessness is the message of false teachers and false faith. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is he who was banished to the island of Patmos, suffering for the name of Christ. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that there's some second level spirituality. There's some second level where if we suffer and are harsh on our bodies or give ourselves over to some kind of suffering, that we'll no longer sin. It doesn't mean that. can't mean that. That would contradict Scripture. What does he mean? Well, there's two possible ways to understand this. And both of them are, are reasonable, but we would choose one, I'll present. First, he could be saying this, that the one who has suffered in the flesh is a reference to the death of the Christian. As suffering ultimately ended in Christ's death, the suffering here for those who follow him is ultimately going to end in their death. And when death has taken place in a Christian's life, then they have ceased from sin. And he's pointing them and reminding them to the ultimate end of suffering for Christ, which is to be free from sin. And knowing that reality, knowing that that's coming, strengthens then the believer to be faithful even unto death. To be faithful even unto death. And so the meaning then on this position would be that the believer knows death brings freedom from sin, which is his ultimate desire, so he can live righteously without fear of death because death is the greatest threat the world can bring and that threat is removed in Christ. And so the one who suffered in the flesh then has ceased from sin. That is possible. A problem with this, however, is that the one who has suffered in the flesh who has purposed to live for the will of God, in verse 2, is the one who has done so on earth, who has ceased from sin on earth. That's presented as the character of the life of the believer here and now. So most likely, the intention of Peter is this. This is the second one. Is that he's saying, the one who has suffered in the flesh for righteousness is one who has by their commitment to Christ, demonstrated a break with sin as the ruling principle and committed to obey Christ at all cost. One has put it this way, that they've acted in a way which shows that obeying God and not avoiding hardship is the most important motivation for his or her actions. The one who is determined to follow Christ, the one who has committed the life to Christ and will obey Christ no matter what it brings, is the one who has shown that they have ceased from the sin that used to characterize them to follow Christ, to follow Christ. It emphasizes, has ceased from sin, emphasizes the present reality of the believer's life, of the believer's life, which again picks up on a key theme in Peter. That the very purpose of Christ's death was not to give us the hope of forgiveness so that we could live however we want. But the purpose of Christ's death in verse 24 is that we might live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the purpose of his dying and reconciling us to God. And he just said in chapter 3, verse 17, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. In other words, you are to be one who is marked by doing the will of God. And that way, this one has ceased from sin. We have ceased from sin when sin ceases to be the ruling principle in our life. It is also true 
However, that this one who has ceased from sin, the life that has made this kind of commitment to Christ and experiences the suffering that comes from that, knows as well a strengthening in that resolved, in that resolve, a strengthening in that faith, a strengthening in that trust. Now, what does that really look like? Well, he goes on to define it. He says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the, will, for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and so they malign you. Second point then is this. The commitment to follow Christ is a commitment to righteousness. And he lays down the godly motivation first. The godly motivation is this. For the purpose, we've ceased from sin, for the purpose to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the desires of man, but for the will of God. This is the guiding principle of a believer's life. This is the guiding principle of a believer's life. It's evidence of an inward change. It's the foundation of wisdom. Something is ruling your heart and affections. Every one of us, something is ruling your heart and affections. If you looked at the totality of your life, there's something that is a banner over it. And it is either to do the will of God, stumbling though we may be, or it is to live a life of self-gratification. He's saying you had that life of self-gratification. The reality of the change is evident. And now your life is guided by doing the will of God. I want you to just notice three things briefly here with this. First is this. Look how he makes his argument. Godliness, the ability to do this, faithfulness, is motivated by an awareness of the shortness of time that we have here on earth. The rest of the time in the flesh, he says. In this sense, Peter is acknowledging, again, from that same episode with Jesus, the same logic of Jesus that he used in the call to discipleship. Remember Jesus said, you deny yourself, take up your cross. And he says, but what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, whatever temporary pleasures may be gained here by avoidance of Christ or denial of Christ, in the end it will come with a cost that is far too great to make that a wise choice. A cost that is far too great to make that a good choice choice your life here is short the wise thing to do is to live it in commitment to christ live the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of god the point is is you have a short time here on earth we need to use it well if you have been redeemed by god then you are to redeem the time that god has given you as a believer How easy it is to get caught up, even for these first readers of the epistle, as much as it is for us, in the temporary things that would distract us from obedience to Christ. He says in Ephesians 5, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. The days are evil. Again, this is spiritual warfare. Recognize that you live, in a sense, in enemy camp. You live, you're living on the other side of enemy lines. And you need to arm yourself. You need to prepare your mind and prepare your purpose 
to obey Christ, to obey Him, regardless of what it will cost, to live for the will of God, to live for the will of God. Secondly is this. His command is reflective of an inward change. Where does lust take place? Lust takes place on what goes on inside of you, right? Don't look a woman in your eyes. It's not looking there, but it's the lust in your heart that is guilty of breaking the infraction. Do not commit adultery. It's what takes place on the inside that leads to sin. But it has the root. It has its source in the affections of our heart. And so what goes on in the affections of our heart for the unregenerate person is an unrestrained lust. And that doesn't mean just sexual lust. It means a desire to live according to your own will. A desire to live according to your own will. It could be for anything. It could be for anything that is not consistent with God's purposes. That isn't consistent with holiness. But to live for the will of God means then that our desire is not to gratify the flesh, but is to rather glorify God. Is to glorify God. It is an issue then of what we love. It's an issue of what we love. Now he's already mentioned that those whom he's writing are those who have been born again, who have been brought forth or been born again by the word of God, who have the spirit of God, who have been called to obey Jesus Christ. He says that in the opening. But really, what's behind all of this is what we love. Listen to the way that John puts it. In 1 John 2, 15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You who have professed faith in Christ have new loves. You have new desires. You have new hopes. You have new dreams. You have new things that you find beautiful. New things that you find attractive new things that you find encouraging, new things that you find comforting. You have new realities on the inside, in your mind and in your heart and your affection that are consistent with delighting in the will of God. And there is all of a sudden those things that were beautiful in the world and desirable and satisfying and pleasing, every secret indulgence have become then to your soul something distasteful, something wrong, Something that brings misery and darkness and a soiled conscience. Something that brings shame. You can't live in the lust of men. You can't live with that self-indulgent lifestyle because the heart has been changed to love something else. We won't turn there, but this is reflective of what it means to be in union with Christ and under his lordship in Romans 6. It's to walk in newness of life. Don't you notice a third thing? It's to move through. A third thing is this. That all sin is moral and spiritual rebellion to the will of God. We're going to get a little closer to home here. All sin is moral and spiritual rebellion to the will of God. God's will and his desires for man who bears his image. This is the world that we were saved out of. Out of. No longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The contrast is then the things that man desires in unregenerate state, in an unsaved state... And the will of God. Those two things are opposed to each other. What characterizes the world outside of God's saving grace is rebellion. It has no concern for the will of God. 
has no concern for what pleases God, has no concern for what his purposes are in this world. Those are irrelevant. They're, they're, they're an occasion of mockery. Because they have no concern for God's holiness and what is owed to him. All sin is moral and spiritual rebellion to God. This is the world that is to be judged. It's the world that crucified Christ. It's the world under the moral and spiritual influence of darkness. Believers, however, do the will of God. And again, this isn't mere religion or morality. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? And he says, depart from me, I do not know you. You did not do the will of my Father in heaven. So there's something here that's more than just avoiding openly sinful practices. Again, this addresses what is loved. It addresses what is loved in the heart. Believers sin, of course, and we fail. But ultimately, he's saying the character is to do the will of God. Not to live in moral rebellion to God internally and with desires, but to live in consistent conformity. Believers want to do the will of God. And that means then that there is going to be a certain godly separation in believers' lives from the fallenness of the world around us. Again, look at what he says. For the time is already sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. In verse 4, he says, They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. There is then a godly separation in our commitment to Christ. The one who knows, is trusted in, committed to Christ, removes himself from those influences that would lead them to unrighteousness. Godly life removes itself from sinful environments then. For the time is already sufficient for you to have carried out the will of the Gentiles. Again, that's set in contrast with the will of God. There is the will of God and there is the will of Gentiles. Here being uh, used for all of the unbelieving humanity. The time is already sufficient. It is to say that those things that marked your former life when you were counted among them, you've now come out of that and you are to remain separate from it. One has said there's no room for dalliance with the lifestyle of unbelievers for any kind of participation or involvement with the lifestyle of unbelievers. Not with unbelievers, those are the ones we bring the gospel to, but with the lifestyle of unbelievers. I can remember when I was first saved, early on first saved, and I had a couple of friends, and one friend said to me one time, and I I think they, of course, as you can imagine, ended up walking away from their profession, Uh, But they had said to me, and I remember, again, a new believer, but this stood out. I still remember where I was standing and they said this because it was so unusual to me. Uh, They said they they had always kind of been a Christian and they'd always kind of been protected from the life of the world. And they really wanted to spend this time a little bit of experiencing those things they'd never experienced before. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard anybody say that? I want to go experience these things. I've never really done that. I've never really gone to drinking parties. I've never really done some of these things. And listen, I want to go experience those kind of things. I want to do that because otherwise, you know, I've never, I've always had kind of this Christian life and I've been kind of protected from that. I feel like I might be missing out on something. I might be missing out on something. We've heard things like that. Or somebody who says that I'll repent and I really know I should be right with God and I want to do that, but I want to do it later after I've had some time to live life a little bit. You heard that? After I've had time to live life a little bit. Go out and kind of do all of these things. That is the thinking of darkness. That is the thinking of unbelief. That is to say then that in righteousness God has designed for us what is against our good. 
and that where our real pleasure lies is in disobedience to God's will. That's what it says. That pleasure really lies in disobedience to God's real will. My, my good really is not in doing the will of God, not in walking consistently with Him, but in dabbling a little bit in this life of the unbeliever, which is a life that is set in direct rebellion to God. And so he addresses that here. The time's already passed for that. You have already experienced those things. He's talking to those who were called out of that lifestyle. You've already experienced that, and you know it's emptiness. You know it's emptiness. Don't go down that road. What is, what is that road? He describes it here. We can connect with some of this. What is the will of the Gentiles? He said, pursuing a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is the normal course of life for the spiritually dead. Paul describes death in this way, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's an indulgence. It's an indulgence of whatever desire comes to our heart and to our mind. That is the life of an unbeliever. It is a giving overness to these things, to whatever seems to gratify the flesh in the moment. Open sexuality, drinking, and all manner of self-indulgence were not uncommon activities, both within the Roman culture and particularly as it was connected to idol worship. It wasn't a part of every Greco-Roman religion or philosophy, but it was a large part of it. And these particular sins, even at the end, are associated with this kind of false religion, the abominable idolatries. The list sounds very much, though, like a description of our own modern culture. Things don't really change much, do they? Mostly has to do with a kind of sexual sexual indulgence and that of drugs and alcohol. Sensualities could be defined in this way, behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. If it feels good, do it. Why? Because the greatest thing is your happiness. You want to sleep with dogs or children or women or men or whatever? Go for it. It's all about your experience of fulfillment, of satisfaction. You think this stuff doesn't happen. That's where the sexual and moral revelation takes us, revolution takes us. They actually had a TED talk where a scholar was promoting the legitimacy of pedophilia. Why not? If there is no moral transcendent reality, then whatever feels good, do it. This is the kind of life that they lived. A course of sensuality, unrestrained sexual indulgence. Lust, strong desires for self-gratification, there's parallel here. Drunkenness, unrestrained use of alcohol, often as a part of, again, the worship of idols. Carousing refers, could likely, to religious festivities. It was a celebration of deities and art, music, and dance, sometimes shown in indulgent dinner parties that one ancient author said usually ended up in drunkenness and license. In other words, they'd start off as just an event and they would end up, as the night went on, as the drinking increased, into a time of debauchery. It's not unlike a lot of secular wedding receptions and other events that include alcohol. You ever been to one of those? I've been on both sides of it as a believer and unbeliever. And you know what usually happens. You go, there's an open bar. You have a few drinks. Everybody's kind of calm talking about the event. Time goes on about an hour or two and the music gets a little louder. The conversation gets a little bit more coarse. The dancing gets a little bit more suggestive until you go on later in the night and it's full blown. 
And that's the idea here. Those kind of drinking parties were a reality of what they had as well, the kind of carousing. Gatherings with excessive drinking and all kinds of sin and debauchery. This list could easily describe many college campuses or high school parties that unfortunately we're aware of. Or nightlife of adults in much much of our culture, culture. These are things of which a believer who has been called out of them, Paul said, are now ashamed. These are things that you are ashamed of. Yes, you did them. Yes, you participated in them, but you've seen their emptiness. You know what it's like to live in rebellion to God. You've committed your way of Christ, and now you're ashamed of these things. Why would you participate in them? Matter of fact, Paul says this in Romans 6, What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. He's reminding us that you were saved out of those things. You were saved out of those things. Why would you want to be a part of them again? Realize that you are committed to Christ. Again, there's some of us who were saved out of that, saved a little bit later, can look at that with experiential knowledge and say it's empty, it's wrong. It leads to nowhere good, but only to bad and things you regret and are ashamed of in your life. Those who were spared from that and maybe saved young or just never went down that road might have a kind of curiosity about it, but there's nothing curious about it at all. It only leads to death. He's saying separate from that. You're, You're out of that. You no longer participate in that. He notes, secondly then, that kind of commitment, though, is going to bring the scorn and the mockery and the ridicule of the world. Look at what he says at the end. They're surprised, or they think it strange, might be a good way to translate that word. They think it strange, or you'll seem strange to them, that you do not run with them into the same excess, and so they malign you. They malign you. They speak against you. The term there is actually literally blasphemy, and that's what's behind the term blasphemy. There's a maligning. There's a speaking against. A failure to conform to culture, to the world's values, or to a group's values that are in rebellion to God is not something that will be silently ignored, but it is something that will be scorned. To fail to conform to cultural values is to say this, that those values are deficient and morally wrong. That they're deficient and morally wrong. They're at odds with God's will. So if you as a Christian will not participate in certain things that unbelievers do, you are by that non-participation saying that what you are doing is an offense to God. It is outside of his will. It is unholy. It is sin. Now how we do that is not obnoxiously, of course, humbly, but nonetheless, the mere, the mere absolving from that kind of activity is a rebuke against that activity. It is to imply that it's wrong. It is to make a moral statement. And this is a part of what's behind it, is this principle. Namely, we read it this morning in John 3, or it was implied there, is that a holy life exposes sin. A holy life exposes sin. One reason that this life is mocked is because of the anger, the hostility is against one whose life would be a rebuke to their own, who would stand against their own. And so that's one part of it. And again, we want to make sure, I'd have to, Say this, you know it. This doesn't mean that you do it obnoxiously and self-righteously in those things. There's humility, there's opportunities for the gospel, there's expressions of genuine care for that person, and so on and so forth. But it is, nonetheless, at the end of the day, a refusal to participate. And that very refusal itself can bring about anger. Think of your workplace. What if you don't talk in the gossip behind the corner 
and around? What if you refuse to do What if in the middle of a conversation you say, no, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that. I, don't, I think that's gossip and that, that, doesn't honor, that doesn't honor God whom I serve. What about the social environment? If there were a kind of party that may even work to your advancement in the corporate world, but you knew there would be sinful activity there that you should not associate with. What about that? What would you do? Where is your convictions? What about your peers in any context of life that are all going to do the same thing? And like Proverbs, those who are actually intending violence, but say, come, come with us. Let's do these things. Let's make a game. Nobody's going to catch us. This is what he's talking about here is that when you refuse to do that, you are going to stand against Whatever activity is being suggested and in standing against it, you will expose it to be wrong and in exposing it to be wrong, you will bring about ridicule. But there's something even more going on here. There's something even more, which actually this is a little more to the point here. It's this. The failure to participate in these activities, particularly here in the context of 1 Peter, place these Christians outside of the, both the cultural and the political norm and expectations. In other words, and let me, there was a connection between the religious life and the political life in that context. So to participate in the social life and the political life, as it were, of that culture meant engaging in certain of these activities that involved sin. And so to stand outside of them was not only a rebuke on the sinfulness of it, it put you at odds with your entire and total environment. Listen to how one author described this, and I'll just let him do it in a few sentences. In the Western world, we take for granted the segregation of private and public spheres, but in public festivals in which the gods were venerated were considered a civic duty in the Greco-Roman world. Those who failed to participate would be social outcasts, just as today American citizens would look with suspicion on those who refused to take the pledge of allegiance to the flag. It was odd It made you stand out like a sore thumb. And it was a failure to participate in public life of idolatry that early on in attacks against Christianity, the attacks were this, that they were haters of humanity. They were atheists. They were involved in all kinds of immoral and sadistic practices in which they ate people, speaking of the Lord's Supper, eating the body and blood of Christ. All kinds of accusations were made against them. All kinds of accusations. They were accused of political disloyalty. They were accused of being abnormal. They were accused of being unsocial. They were accused of all kinds of things. The charges would eventually become more serious when they also failed when this commitment to Christ meant that they could not participate in emperor worship either. Well, now we've just entered into a whole other realm too. Remember, Rome didn't care what God you worshipped as long as you gave ultimate allegiance to the cult of Caesar. You work it, you light this little candle, as it were, or make this sacrifice, then go be a Christian if you want. But just acknowledge that you're under Caesar. And a Christian could say, I could not do that. There is only one Lord. There is only one God I serve. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now you are no longer an oddity or a social outcast. You are a threat to the state, to the political stability of the country in which you live. Doesn't sound too far off. A far left arguments now, does it? It's not too far off of places like Germany. Not only when the Nazis were in power, but even now. Why do they not want, why is in the news 
these homeschoolers, because if you are a homeschooler, you are creating a subversive culture that is a threat to the stability of Germany. And there's other nations like that. What is the far-left arguments and the more radical arguments in our culture? Christians believe doctrines that are hateful to humanity, that are oppressive. They are not merely stupid, they are dangerous, and they are wrong, and they should be illegal. They're hateful. It's hating a child to not let them follow whatever gender desire they may have. It's hating women to not let them get an abortion and even decide to kill a child outside of the room if they want it. It's hating humanity to not let people express their sexual desires in whatever way they choose. It's hate speech. It's not a, it's not a moral argument. It's hate speech. It is a threat to our culture and to our society. Again, that's no different really than what was happening here. This surprise goes from just being a social outcast to what would rise as time would go on all the way up into the third century at various levels of intensity to persecution. To persecution. I'd read to you earlier the Roman governor Pliny in the, a little bit later than this time in which Christians were being put to death. Why? Because they would not offer to Caesar. This isn't too far off. I remember in California, the son of a friend who had to go to psychiatric evaluation. He was applying to get on the L.A. Fire Department. And he had to go to psychiatric evaluation. Why? Because he didn't go out on the weekends and go to bars and clubs and meet women. They thought something was wrong with him mentally. He had to go to psychiatric evaluation. I think somebody here was sharing a story like that uh, too. That it's so outside of the cultural norm that there must be something wrong with you. And this is the kind of thing that they were experiencing here. Even more, when Christians speak out against sin, I already noted this, but what about the case with homosexuality? The argument has been reframed according to the orthodoxy of the new sexual revolution to be not, again, an intellectual or moral or religious argument. It is reframed to be immoral hate speech. They've reframed the argument and therefore have brought persecution. So the question becomes then here, are you willing to be thought strange or to be socially ostracized, ostracized or ridiculed for not participating in unrighteousness for being different from the crowd? We feel these pressures in a variety of ways. Adults feel it in a variety of ways. The workplace, the neighborhood, company parties, the home. Teenagers feel it. The pressure... You're put into situations where you could drink or go to places where you know things are going on you shouldn't be a part of. To watch something you shouldn't watch. To listen to something you shouldn't listen to. I did just as a review. I kind of regret it, but (laughs) public confession here. Is I just went and went through the lyrics of the top 40 pop songs. Don't do that. (laughs) Avoid it. I wish I could have not done that. And I feel I'm fairly aware of what's going on. But I was amazed, I was amazed at the kind of language that is in pop songs. Amazed. Language that would have been unthinkable when I was a kid. Amazing. And yet that is shaping the thinking and the attitudes of our world, not to mention the unceasing exposure to entertainment and to Netflix and to Amazon and so forth. So to stand outside of this kind of moral rebellion to God, to stand outside of that and not participate in it puts you at odds in a lot of different situations. And the temptation can be great to 
give in. But he says, arm yourselves with this purpose not to do that. Arm yourselves with the commitment to follow Christ regardless of whatever it brings. And lastly, and I'll just mention this point briefly, is the commitment to follow Christ culminates in eternal life. And here he brings his argument to a climax. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Why should we not be tempted and participate in that? Because there's a consequence to spiritual rebellion to a holy God and to a creator. Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This reality is an essential element of a Christian worldview that God will judge sin. That this present heaven and earth will be destroyed as an act of judgment by a sovereign Christ, by a sovereign God. That it will be eliminated. That all who are on it, who are still found to be in moral rebellion at the time of death, will be eternally judged by this God forever. And that he will create a new heaven and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. And that is the end for every Christian. That is the way that we frame how we think about this world. And if it's not, then the way that we think about this world is going to lack biblical integrity. So it is the reality of judgment. Why should you avoid the seduction of the world and suffer with Christians and for Christ? Because this world is to be judged. He will judge the living and the dead. Whatever advantage those who reject Christ may seem to have now, and they do have an advantage in that sense, it's only temporary. In the end, all who choose the path of sin will give an account and stand before God as judge. That's his point. In the end, it will not be worth it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The judge here could be the father or it could be Christ. I think it's most likely Christ. I won't get into that. But in either way, it doesn't matter. It is the judgment of God. Whether God the Father is the executor of the judgment, whether it is Christ into whom hand all judgment has been given, John 5. In either case, it is the judgment of God. God is judge is the way that we could think of it. God in all of his triune glory. And the judgment referred to here is the final judgment. It is the great white throne judgment. Which wherever you are and Christ return and the dispensation and so on and so forth. All who understand biblical truth understand that there will be a time of accountability for the whole world. And that's what he's talking about here. There will be a time of accountability for the whole world in which unbelievers at that moment don't have the support of popular culture to defend their disobedience to God, but rather will be exposed for what it will be exposed for what it is before the holiness of God. And those who have trusted Christ will be the shown to be the ones who were right and on the right side and who exercised wisdom in trusting him. The reality of this culmination of all history, the end of all the unbelieving, should provide the perspective and motivation to embrace suffering with Christ over the passing pleasures of this world and to serve him who bore our sin in his body. Well, we don't have time to get into that last part. We'll have to pick it up there next week. But let me just say this. When he says, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that being judged in the flesh as men, they might live according to God, by the Spirit, is simply to say this, that the gospel was preached to all those who believed who are now dead, though by men are judged and evaluated as being foolish. In God's sight, they are those who are participating in his life in the Spirit and will be a part of the resurrection. And so to look to the end, and whatever suffering may be endured now, the end is that you will be on God's side. And that is the place to be. It is the place of joy. 
and blessing. Let's prepare our hearts now for the Lord's favor to worship our King who is now in heaven and whom we serve. Father, we do pray that you would grant to us even now as we fellowship with you in that special way of the remembrance and the remembrance of you and your death and resurrection and present reign and your return. All of these things symbolize as the glories of the new covenant in these elements of the bread and wine or juice. Help us to think on what these symbols point us to and to rejoice in you and commit ourselves freshly to follow and to obey you in this world. To that end we pray. Amen.